Welcome to MQBits Business Thriving in Today's Era podcast, where we teach you how you can start your own business or take your business to the next level by talking to industry leaders and successful entrepreneurs to learn about their journey and learn from their experiences. I'm your host, Shoryam Mawatcher, and I'm joined here today by Steve Holdike. Steve has most recently served as CapTech's co-CEO with more than 24 years experience with the company prior to moving into an advisory role within the firm. Joining CapTech shortly after its inception, Mr. Holdike is a digital transformation consulting executive with a unique blend of business and technology experience. Thank you so much for joining us here today, Steve. Absolutely, man. I'm really happy to be here and I uh, appreciate the invitation to really just kind of spend some time with you and uh, yeah, put whatever uh, ideas I have out into, uh, into the uh, podcast sphere. Yeah, I really appreciate it. Thank you so much. So, Steve, for the people who don't know you here today, can you give us a brief introduction about you and your journey on becoming an entrepreneur up to this point? Sure. Uh, very briefly. So, uh, my name is Steve Holdike. Uh, I serve as uh, CapTech Consulting's uh, co-CEO. I've been with the organization for almost 24 years at this point in time, and uh, through that journey, have been involved uh, both within CapTech as a kind of a startup organization, kind of growing from four consultants uh, to over a thousand, um, and and also uh, supporting uh, Fortune 500 state and local government, and also startups in terms of adopting digital technologies to transform how they uh, perform uh, perform work. And so as my journey to become an entrepreneur kind of has unfolded, uh, it's pretty funny is that it becomes an accidental entrepreneur, right? And so that as we talk a little bit uh, throughout today, you know, I have a, a, an interesting background um, that kind of led me here, uh, but I didn't pursue a path to be an entrepreneur. Um, I really pursued a path to do interesting things and to, to figure out hard problems. And how do you go and apply new technologies and new techniques to uh, different business challenges? And so as you think about a, a journey of an entrepreneur, there's no one thing that says, aha, there's an entrepreneur. Um, there's a series of just uh, kind of life's journeys that presents opportunities uh, with one's background uh, that kind of leads to, well, wait a second, this is pretty fun. This is pretty exciting, working in white space and driving change that solves some of the world's biggest problems is really incredible stuff. And uh, and so looking forward to go ahead and talk about that. Yeah, that's very exciting. And one thing that we'll get back to in a little bit is about, like you mentioned, companies needing technology in their workspace. And especially in the era we live in now, it's focused on and revolves around technology. But before we get into that, you mentioned great stories about how growing up shaped you into the person you are today. So what about your childhood shaped you into becoming the entrepreneur that you are today? Yeah, that's a, that's a really big question. And I spent a little time kind of mapping some things out here. And there are some really highly unique scenarios um, that my youth and growing up provided a platform to go ahead and, uh, and kind of live an entrepreneur kind of career. Uh, and I'll start with really a, um, I had the good fortune of having, um, uh, you know, parents uh, that kind of loved me, uh, kind of, kind of, kind of really kind of uh, emphasized the idea of kind of critical thinking uh, skills. And my father was a law professor um, at Seattle University. And um, his style of teaching is actually highly un uh, unique uh, in academia at this point in time. It's called the Socratic method. 
-hmm. And uh, for those who are unaware of the Socratic method, uh, the Socratic method is a form of cooperative argument dialogue between individuals based on asking and answering questions to stimulate critical thinking and to draw out ideas and underlying presuppositions. Stole that from Wikipedia as a definition. I thought that was a nice working definition. But what that does is it establishes a, a line of inquiry that says, let's go ahead and have a wide open discussion in white space where both parties can bring in ideas and questions and kind of really kind of tumble around the world of ideas to go ahead and discern what might be um, accurate for whatever reason, right? So in the, in the legal setting, right, what would, be the, what would be the appropriate legal guideline or legal outcome uh, when you have the parameters of a, of a legal problem that's out there? So that's the context that my, my father and I would wrestle around every single night um, for my entire childhood. Uh, and so then you can take that Socratic method and you're gonna start applying that in the business setting. And again, that's a really powerful tool because what it says is it says, it allows you to not to step away from the, well, this is how it's always been done. And so how do we go ahead and refine and make it better? Yeah. And allows you to step completely out of the system and say, is this the best way to accomplish it? Is this how the world is today? What if? What if we did X? What if we did Y? What if Z? So, so from a childhood standpoint, I had a unique experience of literally not remembering when my father started grilling me through the Socratic method and having that all the way through my high school experience. Um, then had a really great opportunity to go ahead and uh, attend University of Chicago. Uh, University of Chicago does have a brand of um, critical thinking and systemic thinking uh, to go ahead and uh, build kind of leadership within uh, you know, within the world. And so that really complemented the, uh, the youth growing up there. And so those were some interesting things. Also, my parents were very, very encouraging and really, really uh, indicated that um, ideas required hard, hard work. Um, and that hard work was not something to um, complain about, uh, to go ahead and find somebody else to go ahead and do, but that um, as someone who wants to accomplish a goal, sometimes you need to go ahead and roll up your sleeves and go ahead and do some things that might be less comfortable than not uh, kind of pursuing that goal. And let me give you a perfect example there is, um, uh, when I was in grade school, um, this is in the Pacific Northwest uh, outside of Seattle, uh, there were these massive blackberries uh, uh, kind of groves that grew uh, right around our house. Um, and so you could go and pick unlimited number of blackberries in the summer. And so we did that as a family um, and we really enjoyed just just probably gallons and gallons and gallons of fresh uh, blackberries every single every single year. And um, I wanted to go ahead and uh, understand how you go ahead and do a bit of business. And so through my uh, parents' encouragement, um, they actually uh, set, uh, kind of guided me so that I could go ahead and set up a, a vertical business of BlackBerry sales from picking all the way through sales uh, mm -hmm. and put me into positions that some of the things I enjoyed uh, and some things I didn't enjoy. Uh, and I learned that about myself, um, but that was an entrepreneurial opportunity that my parents provided uh, when I was very, very young and kind of started saying that you know, pursuing goals requires you to continually learn and to continually kind of understand kind of uh, your customer.
and continually uh, to uh, get to the next step. And through that process, then you learn the things that you're good at and you learn the things that you're not so good at. And then you start as you kind of uh, go into more of a kind of a business setting later on in life, you then start learning how to kind of mix and match and complement the areas that you're weak in uh, with talent and individuals who can go ahead and uh, bring stronger skills in those areas and as a team help you be successful there. Um, so those are just a little bit of, of, of my background there. Um, I think probably the final and last but not least, and you've, I think you've heard this as, as, as part of your uh, internship here at, at CapTech is really around this idea around uh, treating everybody through the golden rule. Mm -hmm. um, that's a core value uh, that, that I live, um, that, I, that I try to hold myself accountable to. Um, and, um, and for your listeners, I'm not subscribing to any specific version of it, uh, you know, but I'm talking about a general notion that the world is a, uh, a great place of relationship when we're able to go ahead and treat others exactly as you would want to be treated. And the challenge there is treating everybody around you in every single interaction, every single time, exactly how you'd want to go ahead and be treated. And, and that's, a, that's a pretty high standard, but as entrepreneurship kind of kind of comes into play here. Uh, entrepreneurship and leadership is really, really closely aligned. Um, and what you find there is, is that when you treat people how they wanna be treated and, and they respond to that because then you develop trust. And with that trust relationship, then you have the energy and the opportunity to harness the ideas and the talents of that team to really accomplish things that uh, some people um, and a lot of people sometimes believe to be uh, impossible. Um, so in addition to CapTech, you know, I have two startups right now um, that I'm currently advising that are really trying to accomplish the impossible. One is to really kind of tackle consumer data privacy. And the other one is really uh, to tackle um, uh, uh, human health uh, in, a, in a global way that can affect uh, quite literally, uh, billions of uh, of individuals in a much in a very very positive way. So, that's kind of uh, some of the background there, uh, some of the stories, and uh, I'm I'm hoping that I didn't ramble ramble too long for your audience here. Uh, but maybe I'll pause at this point. No, I think that was perfect, and everything that you mentioned about your childhood and everything that you were taught growing up was very important, and I believe that it should be taught to everybody throughout their lives. And so many people can benefit from, from that. And along with that, you also mentioned the Socratic method, the way to have open and constructive conversations. And I think that's very necessary to have. And having those conversations are very beneficial and allows you to, one, grow as a speaker, but also allows you to learn from others and enhance your knowledge about various topics. And you know that there are a lot of people out there having a growth mindset like you who was taught that growing up and it's shown and exemplified perfectly by the company you've built and the people you have brought around you. And that comes from the mindset you have. Right. And, that, and that's what you're fostering is, is that, you know, thriving organizations, you, uh, you read all the articles about thriving organizations and the thriving organizations are those that there is deep trust around the individuals that are involved and that they are able to have open, candid, dynamic and sometimes dynamic can be you know charged energetic 
uh, you know, yelling, you know, uh, but when it's focused on ideas and it's mm-hmm. focusing on hammering those ideas into the best way that that idea can be uh, accomplished uh, uh, within the marketplace, mm-hmm. it's very, very energizing and it really kind of brings people together uh, to go ahead and accomplish those goals. Yeah, definitely. And that's one thing I want my listeners to understand is having that kind of mindset will take you very far. There'll be times where you'll have to do things that you won't enjoy, but you have to put on those hats and take those things head on with a positive attitude and learn from it because you never know when that knowledge will come in handy in the future as well. And here's the great thing about doing things that might not be the most pleasant thing to do is you can always even have a story. So let me tell you a story. Um, I actually worked in the Alaska canneries um, for four summers uh, to go ahead and pay for college. Uh, and so um, your listeners may or may not have uh, uh, heard about you know, people going up to Alaska, you know, working on, in the canneries or on the fishing boats to go ahead and uh, you know, catch and, uh, and harvest uh, salmon uh, during the salmon season there. Mm-hmm. And, um, and so I did that for four summers. Uh, it, uh, it was the way for me to, to go ahead and to pay for college uh, in, in, in some regard. And so um, I love this story here is, is that, uh, so you can imagine uh, fish processing, right? So you're cleaning fish, uh, you know, you're removing things that aren't consumable and all the, you know, the heads and all the things that go with that process go into a giant uh, chop pump. And so imagine going into your kitchen and you have your little food processor. Take that little kind of device mm-hmm. and now make it seven feet tall and about a five foot dia- uh, diameter with a massive kind of blade at the bottom of it. So that's interesting, right? Yeah. Well, salmon is a seasonal job. That chop pump needs to be cleaned at the end of the season to go ahead and make sure that it doesn't have kind of biological material that's breaking down when no one's around. So every season, two people get their gear on and you get in the chop pump to go ahead and clean out all of the, uh, all the things left from the entire uh, six week season of processing salmon. Guess what? My, my, uh, my first and second year there, I drew the short straw and, uh, had the opportunity to go ahead and get into that chop pump. Wow. And no one wants to do that, yeah. <laughs> but we had fun because we knew how ridiculous the job actually was. And so we would go down there smiling, enjoying the opportunity, and then having a lifelong story about getting inside of a food processor and cleaning it by hand uh, uh, up in the Alaska uh, canneries. And so sometimes those opportunities are things like you don't really want to do, guess what? You don't know how they're going to go ahead and evolve over time. And they develop your experiences and, and, how you, uh, and, and how you work within the world. Yeah. And that sounds like a very unique experience. Um, but I definitely agree. And that if you take everything in a positive way, and even if you don't like it in the moment, like we said, you don't know how it can potentially benefit you in the future. And in the moment, you should try and be happy that you got the opportunity even if it's something that you weren't fully looking forward to. You know how this, I, I, I'm thrilled that you raised that up there because just going with the flow of the conversation, the biggest learning that I've had within my career, and I can see it in a, almost a stepwise way as I've developed kind of skill, insight, and experience, is the easy projects and the easy efforts, I've actually learned very little. 
I attempt to, you know, I try to learn and kind of get as much out there, but you know, easy things are easy things. Mm -hmm. The, the areas of insight, the areas of experience step, the, the areas of understanding how to look around corners and predict kind of what will happen in the future have come from the crucible of just almost impossible situations that you have to go ahead and work through. And I think that's really important, particularly uh, individuals who are uh, starting off their careers, where we all want to go ahead and enjoy our work. We all are seeking opportunities to go ahead and have a great day every day. You know, that's fantastic. Mm -hmm. um, and we all should strive to, to accomplish that vision. But recognizing to accomplish that vision and to have the experience to have the easy days, you mm -hmm. have to go ahead and go through, through some tough times. And through some tough scenarios and to some uh, almost impossible uh, kind of complex problems mm -hmm. to go ahead and develop how how your problem solving and your work can go ahead and work through those challenging times so i think that's really important to to understand uh, because a lot of people see um, you know the end product oh you know look at look at that success over there mm -hmm. and sometimes what they don't see are you know the hours and hours the you know the you know, 120-hour work, work weeks uh, that go into uh, kind of creating that success. And so that's probably something that as people are thinking about entrepreneurship and leadership in general, uh, that those are things that uh, just kind of keep in the back of your mind. Yeah, exactly. I definitely agree with that. And on the topic of your childhood and your experiences, you'd mentioned that you also went into the world of banking first and then went into the world of consulting afterwards. So what were those journeys like and what really brought you towards those paths? Yeah, yeah. Well, so um, as you're starting to pick up uh, is that uh, I, I really do have kind of a different frame of reference and thinking. And so um, I think I was an academic at heart. So, you know, growing up with a law professor, uh, you know, father and my mother uh, had gotten her master's in mathematics. And so academia was a a fairly high priority within our uh, within my family growing up, um, but my father actually wanted to get me out. He's like, "You got to do something. Like, you, 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 like, why do you want to be an attorney? You don't want to be an attorney. Do something else." All right, and so, uh, and so, but I ended up at a, a fairly academic school, uh, University of Chicago, as I, as I mentioned before, uh, and not knowing exactly what I wanted to do, I did uh, two degrees that. Um, that interested me. Um, one was mathematics um, and one was uh, econ. Um, and so I was able to pursue both degrees there. And as I was wrapping up my, uh, my, my academics there, I didn't know what I wanted to do. I literally didn't know what I wanted to do. Um, and so like a lot of uh, kind of uh, 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 students in college that are coming out and coming out with a degree, particularly in a, maybe a, a broader liberal arts kind of uh, setting, I just kind of put my uh, hat in uh, my, my name in the hat for uh, college recruiting. And so as college recruiting was coming along, um, a highly unique academic background whose only job experience has been processing salmon in the canneries <laughs> was probably not the strongest resume to go ahead and get your typical corporate job. Mm -hmm. I basically failed every on-campus interview I had uh, for every New York firm that I was um, uh, interviewed for. And you know, the most challenging thing about that on an emotional level is, is that uh, uh, people who I was mentoring formally in math and econ 
at school were getting those jobs. And so it was, it was kind of tough at that point in time to really say, hey, did I make all the right decisions? Did I do the right thing? Did I get the right uh, internship during, during my college area to get the right job? And you know, you look back and I'm so fortunate that I didn't get the right job. Because what that allowed is, is that uh, Signet Bank um, had a Signet Bank credit card uh, at, the, at the time. It was uh, now Capital One. So Signet Bank was the parent company of Capital One. Mm-hmm. And, and Signet Bank credit card had come to uh, University of Chicago um, to, uh, to do campus interview. And um, I didn't hear back from the first interview. And actually, I found out that I was actually passed over by the credit card group. Fantastic. But what I didn't know is, is that there was an, uh, that they were planning the spinoff of Capital One from Signet Bank, and that Signet Bank wanted to go ahead and pursue uh, uh, information-based strategies, which now in today's world is actually called data science. Yeah. Um, and so, and so Signet Bank had a problem though; they had missed all the college recruiting. And so what they did is that they went back to the book of all the on-site interviews that Signet Bank credit card had done, i.e. Capital One, and they looked at the people who they passed. And I happened to be a high enough score that I was interesting to Signet Bank and uh, where they invited me to come, uh, come in and talk on the retail banking side. And, you know, really from there, that was the one opportunity. You know, you think about these slender opportunities that if they didn't happen, where your world would end up. Yeah. And uh, that one opportunity, I met some fantastic individuals who were like-minded of, hey, we can go ahead and innovate in the world. And we Mm -hmm. can really kind of change how banking is done. And through that on-site interview process, there was a very, very clear match. I learned much later on in my career that um, that one of the hiring managers had a um, they had a golden ticket approach to say, hey, you know what, I'm shutting down conversations. We're just hiring the people, and so uh, it was a fantastic opportunity that I, that I understood that uh, that that I was brought in by one of those managers, kind of uh, under that guise, and it was a fantastic fit. Um, now, well, here's the interesting thing: is so now I'm a person who didn't really know what he wanted to do, right? And now I've gotten a job at a bank. I literally wrapped up my college career. Tell my friends, like, I can't believe I'm going to go work for a bank. <laughs> it was amazing. Because that, yeah. that's the one thing that was open. And, you know, so, so thankful for, for that opportunity because what happened? Okay. So I graduated in 1994. I started my uh, career at Signet Bank on like August 1st of 1994. The Netscape browser was released about two weeks after I started my career. And so I had this really fascinating, unique starting point now with my career. Signet Bank during the day was training me to be a data scientist. Wasn't called it back then. But basically, I was part of the team, and, and Capital One was uh, innovating as well. But in the mid-90s, we were developing the methodologies and the tools and techniques now that are just standard fare as part of our, uh, our data science world in terms of understanding customer behavior, understanding how do you segment them, how do you go ahead and test and learn iteratively at scale. Um, and so that was going on during the day. Well, 
at night, what had happened is there was, there was a, going back to treat everybody how you want to be treated. Mm -hmm. I made friends with everybody. Um, one of the people who, uh, who I was a friend with, he was a high school dropout system admin mm -hmm. that no one else talked with on the floor. Well, he and I just started chatting and he's the one who said, Steve, you need to go ahead and download this thing called the browser. It's pre mind blowing. I'm like, okay. And so I, 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 I got the Netscape browser, download it. And it was like, okay, this is going to be pretty big. This is going to be lights out big. Um, and it was one of those things that you're coming out of college, so your brain hasn't been wired into how things are always done. Mm -hmm. And But you're in a group who has a charter to go ahead and innovate. Yeah. And so through that, um, it provided an opportunity that during the day I was doing data science. And at night, I was teaching myself HTML 1.0. And then had someone teach me uh, CGI BIM Perl um, to go ahead and do some of the early uh, kind of uh, CGI BIM Perl kind of programs that were in the mid mid 90s, and uh, and through that, um, our our VRU vendor for Signet Bank approached us and said, "Hey, we're seeing that you're interested in doing the internet. Well, we're interested in actually uh, taking our VRU software and extending that so that there can be a secured internet-based." Uh, uh, banking uh, platform. Would you like to be our alpha partner? Hey, that sounds really neat. Sure, we'd love to be your alpha partner. So we had to sell that, and and there are some unique stories that will go there about you know, mm -hmm. you know being age 23 and pitching it to your C-level uh, kind of uh, executive committee um, yeah. you know, at, at, at a fairly young age. Uh, but that allowed us to go ahead and basically write out and describe what we think uh, at the time web banking should look like. And we kind of uh, provide them the requirements. And then the vendor built one of the first software vendor solutions for banks to go ahead and do internet banking. And so through that journey, um, so that opened, opened up two things. One, um, open up the opportunity where um, I was able to meet one of the co-founders of, of CapTech. So um, we had the vision, we had the technologist, but we were really struggling on the project management. There's a lot of pieces and parts out there. I was super, super early in my career. And so I don't know project management. I didn't know they had to actually let people know that they had to do things in the future, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Um, and so through that, uh, had uh, we engaged a project manager who was at a consulting firm to come in and partner with me. That happened to be one of our co-founders, uh, Sandy Williamson. And so, so Sandy and I really had a great opportunity to go ahead and partner together with me on the client side, him as a consultant, uh, to really go ahead and just do some amazing stuff in the mid-90s in the digital space. And so in the course of one year, we, we were the fifth bank in the world to do internet banking. We were the second bank in the world to do online bill pay. We were the first to implement, and so you could claim in, uh, invention, uh, the uh, email alert notification frameworks for people to go ahead and get notified about their financial transactions. Uh, and their financial status uh, in, a, in a banking platform. In addition to that, we actually also implemented AOL Bank Now, Microsoft Money, which is no longer a product, and, uh, and uh, uh, Intuit's Quicken uh, product as well. Right. Uh, following shortly after that, we uh, put the first uh, internet-based uh, online application uh, forms for people to 
sign uh, sign up and open up uh, online uh, checking accounts and online savings accounts. Of course, that was before the online sign digital signature act. Mm -hmm. And so the process could bring people all the way to getting the data kind of completed and set up. And then they would have to go ahead and do uh, print something off at home and mail it in to go ahead and get that final signature as part of the uh, uh, regulatory requirements at the time. Mm -hmm. uh, so, so it was a fascinating time uh, back, uh, back in the day. So that was my banking career, right? Mm -hmm. So I, and I, and I pulled the thread in for consulting, right? So I met Sandy, one of our co-founders. So we were working together, uh, and then he started doing another uh, effort at Signet Bank uh, that um, ended up actually was a restructuring for Signet Bank to go ahead and sell, right? Uh, for, for your listeners' benefit, uh, the late 90s was a high uh, time for bank mergers and acquisitions. There was Interstate Bank Act that basically broke down some state regulatory uh, frameworks for banks to go ahead and merge. And you had your now mega banks, you know, your Wells Fargo's, uh, your Bank of America's, they were all but known by different names back then, really started gobbling up uh, uh, regional banks at a really accelerated pace then. So Signet Bank was uh, no exception to that. And so, um, and so, uh, and so Signet Bank was purchased by uh, what was then called First Union, which was then Wachovia, which is now Wells Fargo. So that's how those mergers work. Um, and I had an opportunity to go ahead uh, in the mid-90s to go ahead and go down and uh, do the digital work down uh, at, that, you know, at, at, that, at that bank. And I had an opportunity to take a look in terms of how much I would be able to influence uh, digital within that organization. Um, and then Sandy uh, was talking with me about joining CapTech as, a, as, a, as an early employee. Um, and it was a pretty clear uh, decision to make. Um, young, early 20s. Um, have have some early kind of innovations within the uh, digital industry already under uh, under, under my belt, mm -hmm. and so and and I've really enjoyed working with Sandy now uh, and and back then, and so there was a vision here to go ahead and do innovation over an iterative time, um, over a long period of time through a consulting lens, and so um, so that's how I ended up in consulting, and so in consulting. Um, uh, in early, early days, uh, I had the opportunity based on that banking innovation to then do very, very similar innovations across multiple industries um, uh, in the late 90s, early 2000s. Uh, and so that's been fantastic. And then as those kind of constructs and patterns have uh, kind of um, matured over time, uh, then, then in the consulting realm, uh, my career has been more to more a kind of business transformation, digital transformation, kind of executive coaching advisory kind of role uh, to understand how that stuff can can be applied to their business. So that might be a little bit longer, but at least kind of give you a little bit of history there. So no, that sounds like an amazing journey in so many different areas, and all of that technology being developed and used. You got a bit of everything. Yeah, it's it's a, it's a little bit of interest. That, uh, yeah, it's just. It, if you're curious, there's always something to learn. And I think that that's, uh, that's uh, no truer than in the digital space as it was back in the 90s and even, even today. There's just an explosion of ideas and opportunities and techniques and, and science um, that continue to kind of feed uh, innovation, which in turn provides a fertile ground for entrepreneurs to go ahead and really look at the world differently and, and, and make a mark through uh, solutions that solve big world problems. Yeah, definitely. And 
You also mentioned on another note that at a young age, you were already pitching to the C-suite and getting exposure of public speaking. So what were the biggest things that you learned from those experiences that you still hold close with you today? So a, a few things are really just understanding your audience. Um, most, most things, and it's kind of interesting. Um, I'm going to delineate an entrepreneur from a corporate leader uh, real quickly because they're two different kind of styles and techniques. Corporate leadership uh, with a new idea, you want to understand the cor- the culture of the organization. You want to understand like the decision-making framework of that organization. And then you want to use really kind of authenticity and, uh, and the idea and within that system to kind of pitch it and be deliberate and, and, and really kind of help, help people understand what that vision is and help under and articulate how that vision complements and supports the ongoing mission of that existing kind of business. Right. Entrepreneurs is a little bit differently. Uh, it's a, it's actually a little differently because as an entrepreneur, at the end of the day, guess what your internal side is? Your internal side is like, oh my gosh, I got to go ahead and sell this thing. I got to get the solution going. I got to go ahead and show that, uh, that the, the market values it. And so internally, there's always this almost, uh, how this, I'm going to use a hyperbole here. There's this terror that if I don't get my product or service going, uh, that, that bad things will happen. And to a certain extent, you do have to get things off the ground. But when you're interacting with your network and you're looking for people to go ahead and support you and to go ahead and advocate for you, it's very challenging to come in and say, hey, buy me, you know, buy this, buy, buy, buy. Because that immediately kind of puts a um, kind of an emotional barrier in that relationship for people to go and help. Now, if you approach as an entrepreneur, your network and people who can influence your outcome less from a sales pitch and much more from a relationship side. Hey, I'd love to go ahead and have a relationship with you. You know, I have this idea that I would love your insight on. Can you help me think through this? Mm-hmm. Why is that important as an entrepreneur? Because people want to help people. Literally 90% of human population are actually emotionally geared to help people when they ask for help. Mm-hmm. And, and when you're authentic, when you're genuine and you have a really interesting idea, people want to help just because they want you to be successful because they want to help. Right. Mm-hmm. And so, and so as an entrepreneur, you're working almost the human psychology as well to go ahead and get a band of people to go ahead and support you almost simply from an emotional help perspective, because they're going to be your advocates, they're going to open doors that you don't know exist. Mm-hmm. You don't know when, I mean, here's a good example is uh, something that I'm working on right now is you don't know when your employees may be the grandchildren of the world, some of the world's wealthiest and most influential investors in the world. Ah. Guess what? that can go ahead and open up some doors that don't ha- uh, don't get opened up um, if you don't have those connections. So again, as an entrepreneur, you're looking to develop a lot of relationships, not to go ahead to go ahead and make sure that people buy your product per se, or buy your service. Eventually you'll get there and, and, the, and you'll know when the context is right. Mm-hmm. But your starting point is looking to kind of develop that network 
to go ahead and, and support you during that time period. Yeah, everything you just mentioned is spot on. And I think everyone needs to hear this and understand it because when you're working, especially starting out after college, there's so many things to learn and so many paths to take. And if you keep an open mind, like you did throughout your life, you can take advantage of those opportunities that present themselves, right? And if you keep an open mind and try to make those personal connections with people, as well as be human, because not everything's about selling, those relationships can go a long way. That's exactly right. That's exactly right. And I'm glad you mentioned that because uh, it's really about, it's also listening and adjusting. Mm-hmm. I almost know no startup that said, here's exactly what we did on what we're going to do on day one. And here's exactly what we're doing on, uh, on year five. Yeah. Because you're starting with a kernel of an idea. And that kernel of idea needs to go ahead and be recognized and be uh, and, and, and get into the marketplace. Right. Yeah. And your frame of reference is one data point out of what? 7.2 billion at this point. Uh, humans on, on, on earth. And so while you may have the best idea in the world, you actually need to convince at least a sub a subsegment of that 7.2 billion that that's also a fantastic idea. So part of this process of asking for help and relationships is tuning you to listen mm-hmm. and be willing to go ahead and adjust and to go ahead and change your business plan based in terms of what people are telling you. And I can't overemphasize that enough because that's actually an early career lesson learned on my part is that um, uh, within this uh, cap tech context, uh, we had pursued a notion that I was the lead on. So I own completely all of this, um, an RFID. Uh, we had a product called Tagsware uh, and it really highly, uh, highly effectively integrated RFID data into the enterprise systems. And this is back in the early, uh, early 2000s when Walmart and the Department of Defense was gonna plan on uh, putting uh, RFID tags on every single uh, parcel that kind of flowed through their supply chain. So a big problem, we be fantastic. Um, we took an architecture approach to say like, at some point this RFID data is just gonna be part of the system. So let's create a architecturally kind of um, systemically kind of clean uh, tool that allows people to go ahead and snap RFID data into the enterprise systems in, in in less than a day. We had patents on it. It was super elegant, super, super powerful. Mm-hmm. I didn't listen to customers. And it was terrible because we were in the marketplace with a super advanced platform for doing data integration within the space. And what people were buying were slap and ship functional applications to go ahead and meet Walmart and DOD guidelines. And we didn't provide that to the marketplace. So we did get some customers who bought, bought that in. Um, obviously that's confidential, um, but it wasn't a success. And it wasn't successful for, for, for a variety of reasons. One, the market didn't materialize. Well, first and foremost, the market didn't materialize nearly as much as uh, was originally uh, anticipated. Both Walmart and DOD dropped their uh, RFID mandates uh, later in the 2000s. Um, But largely, the companies that continue to kind of thrive and persist in that space there listened to their customers. And they created specific solutions that met functionally what the customers were buying at that point in time. And uh, we may have had a different outcome, or we may have the same outcome, 
but I really do hold uh, my lack of listening um, and insistence that our solution was going to be right over the long term, over listening to customers to go ahead and de develop something in the short term as a major contributor as to why we, yeah, why, why that, why that didn't, um, didn't, didn't, didn't work out. Great lesson, right? And it's yeah. fantastic. And by the way, that does come back to also as an entrepreneur, you've got to have the skin just to fail, 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 and fail again, right? Those things will happen all the time. With every failure, you have a great opportunity to go ahead and learn a new lesson. And you can say, hey, I tried this last time. These were the outcomes. Now I'm going to go ahead and try this a little bit differently next time. And yep. so, um, and actually, so one of the benefits, what was interesting out of that entire um, uh, tagswear effort is in addition to learning about uh, making sure you're always listening to the customer, particularly when you're in the product space, is I learned a really painful lesson on pricing and the psychology of pricing. And those lessons learned then informed CapTech's strategy around pricing when we actually changed our philosophy and our framework for pricing our work with our clients over time uh, because of those uh, early lessons learned uh, uh, pursuing a product in the RFID space. So again, as an entrepreneur, you're gonna, you're gonna fail thousands of times, but every single failure allows you to go ahead and look back, take a look in terms of the decisions that you made, take a look at the other data points that occurred that affected the outcome, and then you can go ahead and make better decisions moving forward. And so it's, 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 it's sometimes a little nerve wracking. It's not fun to fail, but if you have a mindset to say it's part of the process, it takes a little bit of this thing out of it. That's very well said. And if you look at how many companies succeed, it's very small subset. And if you look at how many companies succeed the first time, it's even smaller. So companies fail, but it's not bad or wrong to fail if you learn from it. If you learn from it and learn from looking back and analyzing what caused this, right, then it's not really that bad because you learn from it and now you won't make that same mistake again, hopefully. And along with that, like you mentioned at CapTech, you're customer focused, user focused. And I strongly believe it's not product first, it's user first because they're the ones facing the problems and difficulties that need to be solved. So we should empathize with the end users and create solution to those problems. That's exactly right. It's, and that, that's the biggest thing. Uh, that's the biggest, that was, a, it's, it's, it's super, super subtle. Um, but, and you can talk about it, but emotionally it's hard to get there. But once you're emotionally there, it's like, your clients at the end of the day really don't care about you. Mm -hmm. your, your, your customers at the end of the day don't really care about what your challenge is. Mm -hmm. Their only frame of reference to engage with you, outside, you know, obviously friends, relationships, et cetera, et cetera. But when it comes to a purchase decision, the purchase decision is typically an emotional purchase decision that has some fact-based analysis underlying it. But they're purchasing it to say, does this meet a need of mine? Mm -hmm. They're not purchasing it saying, hey, I'm going to purchase this to help this company over here. And it's a... And when, but when you're selling a product or a service, you want to go ahead and kind of tell them all the great things about you. Mm -hmm. And in the reality on the empathy side, right? Yeah. You want the message to say like, hey, customer, how do you think about this? Here's how this can improve your life. Yeah. 
yeah. uh, and, and through that. So it's, and, and it's challenging. It's challenging because it's super, super easy to go ahead and panic a little bit and go ahead and say like, well, let me tell you all the things that I want to tell you. Now, slow down, listen, adjust and, and solve the problem that the customer has. Exactly. And if you look at it, there's always some value associated with it. The customers are always giving up something to use your product or service. Right. And especially if you look at apps, right? Most apps that become popular are the easiest to get started with and easiest to use. Yeah. And those apps, um, the creators, they thought about the users and how they'd be using the app and designed it with the users in mind. That's exactly right. Now, if those apps change something, for example, and make it harder to do a task, that could deter the users, someone from using the app altogether. And that could cause the user to leave faster than they came in. Yes. And particularly with digital innovation. Digital innovation is such a, it's a, digital innovation is a fascinating kind of product set because it goes beyond just the functions and the systems. And it's now really designed around human psychology. Yeah. And how do you go ahead and work within the human psychology realm? And so you're exactly right is, is that uh, entrepreneurship and, and digital innovation is, is a really broad mesh of disciplines being brought together to go ahead and accomplish these very, very kind of sophisticated uh, areas to go ahead and attract and retain people uh, almost at, at that psychological cerebral level as opposed yeah. to anything else uh, other than factual. Now, obviously, you have uh, innovations that you know are cl are clear. You know, I, I have this. I I, I bought. Um, I have a I have a new dog, for example. Mm -hmm. And you know, we were wondering about these you know GPS like little collars to go ahead and make yeah. sure if he runs out, you can go ahead and find the dog. Mm -hmm. And so, um, so I I got one over this weekend, and it is beautiful. It, it's just super super easy, elegantly designed. You know an easy setup process that took uh, step by step about 10 minutes wow. and it works. Yeah. Right. And you think about early iterations about like, uh, you know, GPS tracking where you're like, okay, you almost have a, have to have a PhD and get through the <laughs> manual to go ahead and configure it all. And, and it, you're exactly right. This is that it's really, it's, it, it's a fun space to be in. Yeah, definitely. And moving back a little bit, actually, you mentioned that, during the day, you were doing your job, and at night, you were learning. And like you mentioned, you never stop learning and are still learning new things now. So in terms of technology, what do you suggest people start learning now as the value of that knowledge is growing a lot in today's world? So for your listeners, if they don't have a background in computer science, um, and they're saying, hey, I don't even know how to start to understand how... Um, how technology can can work. There's one and only one thing to learn as a starting point, and that's SQL. And why do I say that? Because there's so many tools and so many techniques and so many things out there in the digital technology that if you don't have a unifying framework, you get lost yeah. from the start. So why SQL? Well, math, is the language of the universe. Mm -hmm. SQL is the language of data. Yep. There are way other, of course, there's plenty of other tooling that's out there. I mean, we can get into all the, well, what about such and such, what and such and such. Mm -hmm. But if you take all those layers down, the most common, commonly used tool set and language that's used to go ahead and 
examine, manipulate, and understand data. It's SQL. Mm -hmm. And so SQL is the language of data. So where's digital technology? Everything is driven by data. So if you understand the baseline language of data, then you're actually understanding the baseline language of digital technology. And it starts providing you the framework to go ahead and understand how all the other pieces and parts come together to go ahead and accomplish that. So when you learn SQL, what's the first thing that you learn? You learn how to go ahead and uh, do a select statement. Well, that select statement is not just a select statement to say, here's data. What is it actually done? It's actually introduced you into a client server framework where you now need to understand that as a client, I'm going to go ahead and make a request. I'm going to send a request to a server and that server is going to respond to the request with a set of data based on some parameters out there. Mm -hmm. Well, wait a second. Those concepts are beyond just SQL. Those concepts are starting the building blocks around cloud, mm -hmm. around client server environments, you know, um, around model view controller design patterns within kind of architectural kind of, uh, you know, system architectural designs. Mm -hmm. So, that's why unequivocally as a starting point if people don't have a computer si you know computer science background and they're interested to say like how do we even think about this and how do i go ahead and start learn sql it opens up the door and it opens up the framework um to go ahead and go into all the other directions uh that are related to um to the digital technology that we work in today um yes. now how this there's always newer technologies come online and there's always going to be things that are going to develop new skills. I'm really kind of fascinated right now on some kind of uh, some research that we're doing within CapTech that, that I'm, I'm partnered with the team on is around blockchain. You know, and you started kind of developing kind of like, so blockchain is kind of like TCP IP. It's a foundational technology as opposed to a functional technology. Now, of course, as a function, but you don't go out to the marketplace as you usually say, like, I'm going to go ahead and buy a blockchain. <laughs> yeah, you don't do that. That's you know, that's that's kind of doesn't make any sense, yeah. right? But um, you know, but with blockchain, you're now starting to see all these different use cases starting to come out, starting to emerge. That are certainly going to go ahead and require sophisticated thinking and sophisticated talent and skill sets to be developed to go ahead and support. And so, give one example around blockchain: um, smart contracts. Yeah. Guess what? Smart contracts are pretty cool. Guess what? You got to write smart contracts accurately. So guess what? Understanding how to write a smart contract on a blockchain is actually a future job need that the industry is going to need as blockchain and smart contracts and the framework for kind of automated type um, uh, kind of uh, contract settlement kind of uh, comes into play there. Mm -hmm. So. Again, so you can do that. Now, if you even want to go a little bit further into the, uh, into the, uh, into the you know, into the future, um, I'm also just fascinated with uh, quantum, yeah, uh, yeah, quantum computing and kind of seeing the different qubit uh, kind of architectures yes. that being uh, kind of developed and saw special, special use of a 256 qubit uh, mm -hmm. kind of design uh, uh, about two weeks ago, uh, kind of solving kind of a computationally hard problem in about, I think it used to be like 72 years down to about eight hours. Wow. Um, and so I think uh, for, for, for individuals who are really, really into the science 
Um, you know, I think you have your uh, quantum computing is really, I mean, we, we, we've got to be within, you know, a few years where the commercial application of the quantum applications are going to start coming online as well. That's mm -hmm. going to be pretty interesting too, because our entire world is based on a deterministic computational framework, ones and zeros. Yeah. It's either this or it's that. Quantum is a probabilistic uh, computational scenario. Mm -hmm. Our frame of reference, our math to describe uh, a probabilistic uh, a computational model is just coming along online as well. So there is a host of work that's going to come along with quantum. The, the floodgates on that are still kind of still locked into some of these real kind of raw R&D in the labs of, you know, super cooled, uh, you know, super cooled uh, meshes of, you know, hand-oriented uh, architectures of qubits. Mm -hmm. So we're still a, year, a few years out, but with that unlocked, then you're going to see things really get unleashed in, in that domain uh, from a digital perspective. Yeah, and that's actually why we named our company MQubit. And um, in the future, we also hope to go into the world of quantum computing. But um, anyways, you mentioned you're learning all of these things that people can learn and should learn that will be of value in the near future. And one thing I see a lot of people struggle with is time management. Yeah. So what do you see being the most effective way for you or that you've seen around to manage your time effectively? Yeah, and so this is going to be something that both for you and your listeners, I'm probably a very poor person to go ahead and ask. Um, and that uh, my time management skills are not nearly as strong as, um, as uh, many of my peers and many other entrepreneurs that are out there. Um, some individuals have very kind of rigorous schedules. Uh, they kind of really kind of say, hey, blah, blah, blah. Um, uh, someone who I um, admire tremendously in this regard is my co-CEO, uh, Kevin McQueen, where he has a checklist methodology where he just kind of grinds it out. He knows kind of what things are going to uh, kind of need to get kind of punch list out. And he just kind of, it's, it's, it's awesome. And, 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 and if I had his, uh, you know, I wish this is an element of my background that I wish I had his discipline in. So, but sometimes having a little bit of a, maybe a, 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 a white space, listen to a lot of different things and then thinking about it sometimes comes at odds with the time necessary to kind of be more structured. And so how, how do I do it? Okay. So my basic principle is to basically to understand what are we generally trying to accomplish here? What are my goals? And what am I accomplished? Uh, what are the accomplishments that need to go ahead and get to an outcome based on the pace of that outcome to go ahead and be accomplished? So some things can be done really, really quickly, super, super fast, super, super uh, 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 quickly. You know, for example, you know, thank you for inviting me to be here. I've, I've really wanted to be uh, part of some of the podcasts. I'm starting to do that within CapTech, but this, I think this is only like second or third one that I've recorded. Wow. This yeah, is pretty easy to do. You've done a fantastic job prepping me. And I spent probably about an hour kind of reviewing the questions doing this. And it was super easy uh, out there, right? And we were able to get a knock it out. There are mm -hmm. some things right now that are working on that I have eight-year time cycles on, 10-year time cycles on, three-year time cycles on. And so sometimes, those time cycles, you need to go ahead and just accomplish some tasks during really kind of specific kind of points in time. 
And then you need to go ahead and let things kind of evolve based on those kind of uh, uh, those kind of adjustments yeah. uh, until you get to the next inflection point. So mm -hmm. basically, um, kind of how I manage my time is I have a general framework of the different things that are kind of my responsibility kind of uh, uh, to accomplish. I have a general sense in terms of the timeframes that are uh, that are in play for each one of those kind of accomplishments. Uh, and then based in terms of the priority and those timelines, I'm focusing on the tasks that are specific to kind of get to each one of those goals that are out there. So it's, I'm actually not suggesting that that's the best system in the world. The one thing I would draw out of it are two principles that everybody can do, which is one, understand your time frame and understand what you can accomplish and the things that you just need to go ahead and spend at low time to unfold. To, to, to be successful, okay? Yeah. And the, and the second one is related to that, but prioritize, you know? Focus on the big things or the big things or the big things. And so really kind of mixing both kind of professional and kind of personal things. If you look at my car, my car is beat up. Because guess what? Yeah, I drive a truck. I occasionally are kind of in woods. Have I accidentally hit a tree? Sure. Yeah, have I have I gone ahead and uh, and do I have a dent in, in the back of my car? Sure, but it happens so frequently that to me, in my own personal value system, I have dents in my truck. I don't need to go ahead and pull them out. I don't have to take them to a body shop. I don't need to go ahead and have that worry of something that I consider to be low priority in my life. Mm -hmm. Right? A lot of people say, "Well, everything's a high priority." Well, I got to go ahead and do such and such right now. Yeah. Do you really? Is it is it is it mildly kind of embarrassing to have some tension truck? Actually, to me, not really at all. But you know, so so understanding the things that are high priority versus low priority, and then saying I don't really focus on those high priority items and the lower priority items. Either they'll work themselves out, or I can just go ahead and accept the risk or the issue that's tied to that thing that I didn't do, and I can be okay with that. And sometimes you're just making those judgment calls on a on a day-to-day -day basis. Yeah, it's like ROI. When you go one route, you'll be giving up something. And it's like if you're working on starting a company, for example, you may be giving up spending time with family. But finding that balance is the most important part where things that are of equal importance need to be balanced. And if you start looking at things in an ROI perspective, like what return are you getting and what you're giving up, and you weigh those options, you may be able to prioritize things better. No, that has, I, I, I have if, if you don't mind, I'd like to overemphasize that point with the story, mm -hmm. which is that understand the big things of what you want to accomplish and focus on those. And the reason is, is that every piece of time is important. Your time is critical. And so based in terms of what you want to accomplish, you have the same timeline that everybody else has out there. And so by, by way of extreme, so you've heard my approach. You focus on the big things, you work on the effort, uh, and then you let the small things happen. The alternative of this is this. I have a beloved family member who I'm going to kind of keep uh, generic, um, who I'm very, very close to. And, um, and this beloved family member uh, needed to have some uh, tires changed on a car. You have new, new, new tires on a, on a Toyota Camry, one of, the most, one of the most common cars on the road with the most common yeah, yeah, that, that's out there. Mm -hmm. Um, and this individual said, hey, would you be willing to go ahead and buy these new tires uh, for me and, uh, and get them put on? I'm like, 
absolutely no problem at all. Happy to do it. But wait, before you do that, I want to go ahead and get the best price on these tires. I'm like, what? Well, I have these eight different dealerships that I'm going to go ahead and call and I go ahead and get different price quotes from each one of them on the tires. This uh, you know, beloved family member spent the next two hours calling different car distributors, spending their time to go ahead and get the best deal. At the end of that exercise, the price differential from the highest price to the lowest price was $8. Yeah. Most people's time is worth more than $4 an hour. Mm -hmm. Recognize when the small stuff is the small stuff, let it go, focus on the big stuff. And particularly if you're an entrepreneur, if you're an yeah. entrepreneur, you got to go ahead and focus on the big stuff. And then you also hear the other thing that's going to totally sound counter to it. Then you also, once you get things running, then you have to go ahead and worry about the, uh, the cracks in the sidewalk. Then you have to go ahead and start worrying about like, do I have somebody to worry about the cracks on the sidewalk? Uh, but always keep the big thing uh, in mind and always prioritize uh, those activities to move the big things forward um, over the smaller things that can be safely deferred or ignored. Yeah, I definitely agree with that. And also throughout this episode, we've been talking about an entrepreneur. So what does that word entrepreneur mean to you? You know, so I, so I think entrepreneur is someone who has the insight and ability to work well in white space, to develop an idea or concept and lead people to bring these ideas to light. Um, and in, in, in addition to the insight and ability, it also comes with grit and determination. You have to do it. But here's the cool thing is, we live in a country where there are millions of entrepreneurs and entrepreneurs aren't defined based on the scope and scale of what they do. I'm thrilled that I got home yesterday and my, I have four boys. My third boy has actually now kind of joined another kid and they're basically doing a yard care business wow. at the at tail end of this uh, pandemic. And they're killing it. They're killing it. They're making between twenty to thirty dollars an hour, and they're overbooked for the summer because there's plenty of work that's out there. And you have two high schoolers who are simply saying, "You know what? I'm gonna go after it. I'm gonna go ahead and uh, do good work for people who want to go ahead and get work done." That to me is entrepreneurism. That you have this self-starting motivation to see that there's a problem that's out there that you through your efforts and through your relationships can go ahead and solve the problem out there. That's a starting point of entrepreneurism. Now, of course, then you can go with the scope and scale of like, you know, our, our, our recent astronaut Jeff Bezos and Elon Musk and, you know, the scope and scale of that entrepreneurship. And that's what people, you know, sometimes aspire to be and fantastic. But the scope and scale of the problem to be solved doesn't actually define entrepreneurialism. Entrepreneurialism is that insight, uh, is that mix of insight, grit, determination, ability to go ahead and go in that space that no one else is, or other people are, or competitors are, mm -hmm. and create a home and create an outcome that is successful um, financially. Now, I'll, I'll probably go put a little kicker on that one is, is that I do respect one, uh, I have this, 
I respect a lot of comments out there, but one, uh, and I forget who said it out there, but the best thing to go ahead and measure entrepreneurialism is the PNL, right? You've solved a problem that people view valuable if you're able to go ahead and demonstrate a profit. Mm -hmm. If you create the best mousetrap in the world and no one buys it, it doesn't matter, right? Yeah. <laughs> so the cool thing about entrepreneurialism is that it's this weird mix of all these things that can come together. And like you said, a lot of things, times they fail and sometimes they succeed. And the cool thing is there's an objective milepost of success. And that's whether or not that company can be an ongoing concern without ongoing just infusions of capital from investors hoping that at some point you'll go ahead and get to break even. Yeah, and that brings me to my next point. You mentioned a few challenges and you mentioned a few challenges as an entrepreneur. Do you see any big challenges as you become an entrepreneur and as you go to start a business? Yeah. Yeah, so the, 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 there's a few things that um, from a challenge perspective, entrepreneurs really do want to kind of steal themselves up for disappointment and, and, and failure all the time. Because on the pursuit to success, you will have tens, hundreds, thousands of small setbacks, lessons learned, fails. And, and that requires a certain level of emotional discipline. And a, a, a and a emotional character that allows the person to pick themselves up, say, you know what, I didn't win that time, but you know what, we're still moving forward, and here's how we're going to go ahead and, and lift ourselves up there. So really, so from an entrepreneur perspective, I know everyone says that, but that's you, you really got to you have to have the emotional structure to know that you are going to face adversity the entire time. And you're going to be thinking about that, and it's going to consume you. Um, and it's and 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 to the point where you want to look at your family structure, you want to look at your uh, uh, your uh, your friend structure, you want to take a look in terms of your priorities, and recognize that entrepreneurism, particularly getting something off the ground, will probably be the majority of your focus during that initial kind of focus at, uh, of that area. And there are trade-offs there. You know you. Um, and I would, I always encourage uh, uh, people who are younger in their careers to go ahead and, and, and take a swing at entrepreneurism because it's much, much harder uh, when you're later on in your career where you may have uh, financial obligations, family obligations to go ahead and step out and, and put some focus there. I'm not saying that's impossible. In fact, in fact, actually, the areas that I'm involved in advising right now the founder CEOs are all kind of uh, uh, family-oriented individuals, um, but they have set expectations with their families in terms of uh, how they're going to be able to support that. So that's that's a big one. Um, another one, um, and, and there's a great Shark Tank kind of advertisement and some of that there where uh, the entrepreneur didn't listen at first. And and really, like that's why I talked about our tags where effort early on and, and really kind of imparted a painful lesson learned that I had to learn, which is you got to listen. You got to go ahead and listen to what people are saying. You can discard bad ideas. Not, not, a lot of people are going to be like, I don't understand your idea. That's okay. You know, but listening to what they don't understand and then articulating how do you go ahead and bring people in the next conversation on board in a more efficiently. That's a lesson learned from that conversation, right? So listen Recognize that people who are uh, providing you the ideas 
emotionally are helping you and emotionally are actually providing you the best set of um, advice that they have within their experience. And then from that, um, the challenge is, as an entrepreneur, do you have the flexibility to change and disc- discard ideas that aren't working in the marketplace? And so I'll have this. And I'll, I will, uh, you know, coming back to the tax board thing is, is that I would say that that was my biggest lesson, one of my bigger lessons too, is that when it became quite clear that it was not the right thing for CapTech to do, I was still holding on to the dream. And it took, uh, you know, I'm very, very grateful for the executive leadership of CapTech. It wasn't fun for me, but they shut it down. You know, they, they, uh, you know, they, they shut it down very clearly and, and set expectations for me in terms of kind of doing that. I'm a, this? it was painful. And I'm deeply appreciative for the experience because what I, what I understood in hindsight was that was exactly the right idea. We had to go ahead and leave that idea uh, on the cutting floor. And, uh, and I appreciated having, uh, you know, both advisors and, and people who are controlling. So, uh, and, and bosses who said, you know, we really need to kind of move on here. Um, and so that's sometimes a challenge as an entrepreneur is at some point to say when, to, when to say when, um, a lot of times that sometimes comes to when the capital dries out. So, yeah. So, uh, I, I, and those are some of the challenges as an entrepreneur. Um, you have other things, you know, you have Peter Thiel's kind of notion about going from zero to one, uh, you know, I'll let uh, listeners go ahead and listen to uh, 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 bigger brains on that one. Uh, venture time to kind of uh, uh, play it back here. Um, but those are the things I have is just just strength through challenges, the emotional wherewithal to go ahead and accept uh, the lessons that come through fail failures, and then the flexibility and uh, and the wisdom to make adjustments uh, when they need to happen when they happen. Yeah, I definitely agree. And as an entrepreneur, you go through a lot of different things and learning experiences. And if you take it as a learning experience and take those challenges head on and be open to learning from each experience, like we mentioned, that's how you grow. Right. And as you go through those challenges, it makes you stronger and can make you think in ways you may not have even thought before. And in regards to starting your own venture, kids my age, most of us have less pressing responsibilities that we don't have to worry about too much. And now's the perfect time for you to go ahead and start a business because most of us are still at home because of COVID and social distancing or have at least some time with the way a lot of classes are structured. So we have some more time. And after this moment in your life, you may not have as much free time as you have now. And a lot of things that I've learned, I started my company and what I've learned and what I've seen from successful entrepreneurs the most is having the right mindset and dedication to work hard and accomplish the tasks that were set out to be accomplished. And I strongly believe everyone should be wanting to grow, be open to learning new things and work to have that growth mindset. And, and I would actually say is that's almost the delineation between an entrepreneur versus everybody else. You described being at home. You described having time. What you didn't describe was crushing uh, Tiger King on Netflix. <laughs> Although you may have watched it, I watched it. it was yeah, you know, I haven't seen it yet. Right? So uh, you, you have everything out there. So you know, yeah, you know, I have a family, right? So we have to go ahead and uh, you know spend some family time together. Exactly. Um, but what you described was an entrepreneurial mindset. 
wait a second, I have a gift of time. Wait a second, there are opportunities to go ahead and learn here. Hey, I can go ahead and put something out here to go ahead and test, test and learn. And it's fantastic. You're, 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 you're using your time. And I think that's also that mindset of an entrepreneur is an entrepreneur almost can't sit still because there's too many interesting things to go ahead and do. It's too, it's like, why would I sit still? Why would I, you know, hang out and particularly hang out by myself in my apartment for elongated periods of time? I got to do something. I got to create something. So, yeah. Yeah, exactly. And Steve, it's been a pleasure having you on the show. I really appreciate it. And I loved our conversations, what we shared and learning from you as well. So I really appreciate you coming on and thanks again. Absolutely. Really enjoyed it. Thank you for the invitation. Um, this is part of my test and learn as well. And I'm looking forward to uh, seeing how it comes out and, and, and supporting you uh, in, uh, on this endeavor. And I uh, so would much. love to go ahead and uh, come back uh, at a future date to go ahead and uh, build on some of the ideas that maybe we kind of uh, started but didn't complete today. Yeah, of course. Thank you so much. All right. Thank you for listening to MQBit's Business, thriving in today's era podcast on the MQBit Network. To find out more information about the podcast, get more information about our guests, and more, visit mqebit.com. Again, I'm your host, Shoryam Malatra, and we'll see you next time.